thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Over the last few years, we have had more medications available to treat central disorders of hypersomnolence. While treatments for narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia are similar, there are some specific considerations when we are trying to determine which combination of medications is most appropriate for our patients. There is significant payer coverage and formulary variability, which adds another layer of complexity to this conversation. Some are considered off-label, while others are on-label but may be cost-prohibitive. Dr. Herrera Atarian is here today to help us understand some of these nuances of the newer medications, how they perform for specific symptoms, and how we might want to consider tailoring our medication regimens with shared decision-making. Dr. Atarian is a professor of neurology at Northwestern University. He has a special interest in central disorders of hypersomnolence and estimates that he has 300 patients with narcolepsy and 120 with idiopathic hypersomnia in his practice, of which half are his personal patients. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start broadly. Tell me about your approach to the patient with a central disorder of hypersomnolence. Is this something where you have a first-line medication that you start with for almost everyone? Uh, yes. Uh, the first-line medication, I start with almost everyone unless they've tried it before or there are certain unique circumstances, uh, is modafinil. Mm, that makes sense. It's um, tried and through a long history of effectiveness and safety in uh, patients. And... Uh, it is uh, covered uh, easily uh, by insurance companies for narcolepsy and sometimes for idiopathic hypersomnia. And when it's not, people can get it uh, inexpensively through good RX. So it's both cost-effective and uh, effective, uh, therapeutically <laughs> speaking. So then how do you decide what to add next? Is this sort of based on comorbid conditions, specific symptoms, side effect profile? Uh, yes. So uh, all those play a role. Um, so let's say the modafinil is uh, somewhat effective uh, and uh, uh, the person is having uh, significant uh, ancillary symptoms like cataplexy or sleep paralysis um, uh or having disturbed sleep at night. And in the case of idiopathic hypersomnia, if they have significant um, uh, morning inertia, mm. then I would start uh, add an, an oxybate. Ah. So, yeah. so, so how do you decide which oxybate to use? So uh, unfortunately, that's decided for us. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so true. Yes. Uh, so for idiopathic hypersomnia, it's only going to be the low salt, ox low sodium oxybate, the mm -hmm. mixed salt oxybate, uh, the Zywave. Uh, and for narcolepsy, um, depending on their insurance, either generic Zyram or um, Zywave, depending on the, uh, in the formulary of their insurance company. Well, that's what I thought you were getting at when you said that it's decided for us, right? Uh -huh. That it's a lot of it is decided by insurance. So what are your thoughts on the low sodium oxivate versus sort of the regular? 
So um, I think that it it depends on the circumstances. Um, if the person is otherwise healthy, um, they do not have uh, high pre-hypertensive blood pressure, they don't have heart disease, uh, they're young, healthy, narcoleptic, um, I do not uh, feel the necessity to push for the low salt low, or the Zywave, the low sodium, mm. um, because there's really no evidence that um, it's going to long-term uh, cause any kind of uh, uh, cardiovascular morbidity. What about the argument that patients with narcolepsy are at higher risk of cardiovascular morbidity? So, yes, so the, they are at higher risk. However, uh, that higher risk is a fact of, uh, function of multiple uh, things, and there's no evidence that the risk is going to increase if we restrict the sodium mm. at the beginning when they are not symptomatic. For me, high risk means I keep a close eye on them. And at the at the beginning of the elevation in blood pressure, I would take that into consideration. Oh. Um, or I'll keep a close eye on their cardiac symptomatology. Do they get any edema uh, uh, in their ankles when it's hot outside? If they do, then I will... Um, uh, switch them to the low sodium. Mm. But but with, in the absence of a longitudinal study showing me that this drug is increasing their, uh, the patient's risk uh, of the hypertension, whether or not that risk is already elevated, it's making it even higher. I mean, that's based on speculation. Mm. Um, because if you look at the studies that looked at uh, dietary sodium and increased risk of hypertension uh, and came up with the original guidelines of lower sodium, uh, those were actually, uh, the, the guidelines for hypertension were different then. Ah. So they included people who they termed as pre-hypertensive but with today's guidelines, those people would be hypertensive, but PCP will prescribe their medication. Okay. Interesting. So have you had any experience with sort of the new kid on the block for, for Oxibate, the Lumrise? Yes. Um, so we have, uh, obviously, for Lumrise to be approved, the patient has to fail multiple other medication. Mm. Uh, so these are all refractory cases. Uh, we have started seven uh, patients on Lumrise. Okay. Uh, but none of them have actually received the drug yet. Oh, me neither. I, I've I've tried it in a couple, and none of them have received uh -huh. it yet either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So so let's talk about Petolicent. How does this one work? Uh, so Petolicent is supposed to work by increasing histaminergic activity uh, centrally, um, and it has been approved in the UK longer than the US. Mm. Uh, it does help significantly with the cataplexy episode. 
And in some of the narcolepsy patients, particularly narcolepsy type 2, who complain of a brain fog, mm. it helps dissipate that brain fog somewhat. Oh, that's really interesting. That's such a, um, that's a very meaningful symptom for uh -huh. patients, right? Uh -huh. And that's why they did a clinical trial, which I think it just uh, wrapped up, um, of uh, uh, petolescent in uh, idiopathic hypersomnia because those patients sign have significant complaints of uh, brain fog. Yeah, I was uh, kind of wondering. I don't know the results. Well, that's what I was wondering. You know, I think yeah. we've kind of gotten used to something being approved for narcolepsy, and then we kind of uh -huh. hope uh -huh. <laughs> that it will be approved for IH. Because you're right. I think that's so, the thing. If I if I query my patients that have IH, it's that brain fog. Yeah. You know, that really is. Yeah. That really is bothersome. So, what side effects should we watch for with this medication? I mean, is there anything we should be monitoring? Um, so, like all wake-promoting agents, it can increase blood pressure. Um, so, that would be one thing. Um, headaches, uh, again, typical of uh, wake-promoting agents. Mm. They can't take antihistamines with it. Obviously, it makes it ineffective. Right. Uh, and it does interact uh, uh, through the uh, hepatic metabolism pathways with some of the antidepressants. Uh, so if they're on antidepressants, the recommendation is either to start the pitolescent at a lower dose mm -hmm. or to lower the dose of the antidepressants to get the same effect. So those are really important considerations, you know, especially since um, the antihistamines are over the counter. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. So yes. it's important yeah. to communicate that with our patients. And so what about Sinosi? So for me, I kind of like that there isn't an interaction with an oral contraceptive. Uh -huh. um, how does this one work? So Sinosi is um, a both uh, a selective dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Um, it's, it has many advantages. Um, one of the advantages you mentioned is that it has very little drug-drug interaction. Mm. Uh, even though the uh, EMR prescription modules will give you a warning if the person is also on an uh, SNRI or an SSRI. Um, but uh, generally at the 75 and 150 milligram dosage, it doesn't have much of an interaction with any drugs. Um, and the other advantage is that it's a once-a-day pill. Mm. And uh, in the Clinical trials, uh, at least the, we were one of the sites, uh, the, the subject I enrolled, I wasn't hugely impressed uh, by its effectiveness, but mm. afterwards, using it in clinical practice, if, if cost wasn't an option, mm. I would use it first line. Really? Okay, that's impressive. It's extremely effective, it's extremely well tolerated, and no drug-drug interaction. So can you combine Sinosi with modafinil or armodafinil? Um, some people have done that. Uh, I mean, there's no reason why you can't combine it, but uh, um, they work sort of similarly because the others are dopamine reuptake inhibitors. I find it um, 
not very helpful to do mm-hmm. that. And if I'm going to combine it with something, it's probably going to be with modafinil as an eve as an afternoon dose, a low dose modafinil in the afternoon if the sinus is not lasting. Oh, long that's enough. an interesting strategy. I hadn't considered that. You know, in my mind, I think of them as similar. You know, just because of the mechanism of action. But that's really interesting to add a little sort of, you know, noon dose of, you know, one or 200 of modafinil. Okay, that's interesting. So where do the stimulants come in? Um, So often uh, um, stimulants, uh, patients come on stimulants. Mm -hmm. Because uh, especially with idiopathic hypersomnia, so many people... Um, uh, get misdiagnosed because they go to their primary care doctor or to a psychiatrist who uh, uh, does a quick attention assessment and diagnoses them with ADHD and puts them on stimulants. Mm-hmm. So a lot of patients come already on stimulants. They may be on a low-dose stimulant. They're tolerating it well, uh, but their symptoms are still partially controlled. I'm not opposed to increasing the stimulant dosage there. And so, uh, is that what you would do first if somebody comes to you on first, a stimulant? Yes. You would, because mm-hmm. uh, they're already on that medication yeah. and presumably tolerating it. Ah, okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, the other um, usage for stimulants is obviously in the treatment refractory cases. Mm. Uh, no doubt they are significantly more potent than uh, any of the uh, wake promoting agents. Mm-hmm. Um, and tend to be uh, somewhat more effective uh, um, in keeping them awake. The main limitation is always side effects. Right. So there's a lot of, of conversation about um, addiction. Mm-hmm. What What's your thought about, you know, for patients who have narcolepsy or IH and then this potential for addiction to stimulant medications? So uh, actually, this has been uh, published in the in the medical literature. Mm-hmm. Majority, if any, patients who take it for narcolepsy get addicted. Mm. With IH, if the diagnosis is properly made, again, anybody who's taking it for a therapeutic reason, they don't have addiction. Mm. Um. Yeah. Partially could be because uh, in narcolepsy with the orex- loss of orexin, there's the dopaminergic uh, uh, pathways are malfunctioning, so there's no reward system. Uh, mm. But it's not unusual for my narcolepsy patients not to call to fill their prescriptions and then come to clinic and say, oh, yeah, I forgot to fill the prescription. <laughs> I'm sleeping now, which is not something you would see if somebody had ADHD and they needed their Adderall, for example. Well, and that's funny, right? Because even patients who have comorbid ADHD will say that, that I can't yeah. remember, right, to, to get my meds. Yeah. And so I, I've mm-hmm. always find that I've always found that a, a kind of um, peculiar, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of funny that that when you talk to somebody that has narcolepsy or IH or even ADHD and you ask them about this potential for addiction, they're like, I don't even remember to go to the pharmacy (laughs) to pick them up. So you're right. I think there's sort of the fear versus Uh sort of the boots on the ground experience. Yes. Yes. So um, 
as you talk about combining medications then, mm-hmm. so you start with a modafinil, maybe Sinosi, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, plus minus stimulant if they're on, maybe an oxibate. Um, mm-hmm. Where does patolicin come in? Um, so, uh, patolicin, uh, uh, I use it uh, in people who just need a little bit more alertness and the medication there isn't really giving it to them. Uh, or if they still have cataplexy, uh, it's very effective in managing cataplexy. So would you ever consider it first line for somebody with cataplexy? Um, I, I would consider it first line um, if they had prominent cataplexy with mild sleepiness. Mm. Interesting. It's it's hard to get though, isn't it? It's very hard to get, and uh, <laughs> usually they want the person to have failed yeah. four different medications to be approved for pitolocent because the cost is $10,000 yeah. a month. Yeah, the first time I met with a rep, um, she wouldn't tell me how much it was, so I, I Googled it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was shocked. <laughs> so let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about how to care for patients with a central disorder of hypersomnolence. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Create customizable practice exams with the new Sleep Cues, Board Review 2.0. Pulling from over 350 questions, this product allows you to tailor exams to best fit your needs. When you're ready, complete and pass a self-assessment exam to earn five continuing education credits. This product can be used again and again, reshuffling the questions to allow you to gain confidence and best prepare for your sleep medicine exam. Visit learn.asm.org to purchase. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Atarian about the medications used to manage central disorders of hypersomnolence. Okay, so I'm going to ask you something that is controversial, okay? Okay. Over the years, um, now that we have more and more treatment options, and I'm specifically thinking about the oxibates, uh-huh. Is it important to distinguish between narcolepsy type 1, type 2, or IH since the treatment options are similar? So where I'm going with this is, is this an academic exercise or does it have important clinical implications because a lot of the time we have to decide whether we wean off the antidepressants or not? Okay. Um, so I personally think that it, it is more than just an academic exercise. Mm. Uh, Currently, I agree that uh, uh, forgetting the payer bureaucracy part, uh, medications are interchangeable for both conditions. Um, However, I feel um, that if we do not, now that we know that potentially they have different underlying mechanisms, Mm it's important to distinguish them for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, from a diagnostics standpoint, uh, I think that, uh, and this was another paper, I think it was either in JCSM or Sleep from Emory that uh, showed that MSLTs are usually normal in like 45% of patients with idiopathic hypersomnia, Mm -hmm. and it's after long sleep that uh, uh, they they make the diagnosis with documenting long sleep. Um, So I think that 
that's an important uh, distinction because then there would be so many people uh, who would just get an MSLT, not sleep on the MSLT, right. uh, and then say, no, you don't have anything and be missed. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, Lynn Marie Trotty had, had done that paper about the test, retest reliability of MSLT. And so, you know, for me, when we talk to our patients, especially ones who are on, you know, antidepressants and you just, you know, it's just not in their best interest to take them off, um, we'll have this conversation about, well, what we're looking for is a mean sleep latency less than eight minutes. And, you know, we kind of get into the nuance, but then I kind of warn them that payer coverage for medications for narcolepsy is better than coverage for IH. Okay. But it's challenging, isn't it? It is challenging. And that's the other thing that um, I personally feel strongly uh, uh, about is uh, often uh, physicians will call something something else so that the patient can Mm -hmm. get the drug they need. Right. Yes, that will help that patient then. But if we don't... Uh, if we continue doing that and do not organize yes. and advocate for IH to be recognized and payers to pay for their treatments for IH and et cetera, um, uh, that you, it will never happen. Yep, I totally agree. It's, it's short-term loss for long-term gain. Yes. Yeah, because it's a very important, especially I think, um, there's so much around this that when people are sleepy, they're um, people in their immediate orbit, right? Their friends, their family, uh-huh. their coworkers just assume they're lazy, right? Uh-huh. Just go to bed earlier, take some melatonin, have uh-huh. some caffeine, right? So I think there's just this general lack of understanding that this is a real thing uh-huh. <laughs> and it's uh-huh. really important to treat. Um, and so then... I think that's it's an important conversation to have, especially when it becomes a little bit more complex about weaning, you know, medications and and having coverage and even understanding that this is a lifetime disorder, uh-huh. Uh-huh. right? And so we need to make sure that they do have all of everything in place to get long-term coverage for their medications. Uh-huh. Absolutely. You know, we've had, I think I've had two people that have had to switch insurers because they were not offering any sort of coverage for their medications. Yeah, and I have a, a, a couple of patients on Cigna. Cigna is not a large insurer in our patient population, okay. but I have a, a couple and they only, with, with documented uh, bona fide narcolepsy type 1, mm. they would not cover more than two um uh, brand name drugs mm. with, with no logic as to maybe they need three. <laughs> no, we only cover two. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, what about the whole, uh, the, I forget which payer it is where you need 14 episodes of cataplexy in two weeks to get coverage. Yes. yes. I mean, yeah. I don't know who comes up with this. I know. And this, this was uh, based on the clinical trial where they enrolled people with 14 episodes of cataplexy to show a benefit in cataplexy. Mm. So they took that and uh, um, uh, whether misunderstood it or did it on purpose not to pay, right. now they're demanding 14 episodes of cataplexy a week. Uh, it's very similar to what happened in uh, 
um, uh, I think it was in Ohio, uh, one of the insurance companies, uh, their branch in Ohio, the medical director there read, this was when home sleep studies were first being advocated by the AASM. Okay. And she read that home sleep tests are both safe and effective to diagnose sleep apnea. Okay. So she concluded, therefore, in-lab studies are both unsafe and <gasps> inaccurate in diagnosing. Oh, so, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot of that where they twist the liter- the words published in the literature to uh, save huh. money. So you know what else I find really kind of frustrating mm-hmm. is, um, and one of our colleagues, um, Anne-Marie Morse, brought this up on one of our, um, we were on a committee together, mm-hmm. that there really are no great options for our patients during pregnancy. Correct. So how do you how do you tackle your, your patient who's pregnant? So uh, for pregnancy, um, I generally advise them, if they can, not to take anything in the first trimester. Mm. Uh, because, uh, you know, by, um, uh, I think, uh, by 10 weeks, all the major organs have formed. Mm. And then I, uh, I've read through a couple of papers that uh, well, actually, it's the same paper that gets updated every few years and usually appears in either uh, chest or uh, sleep. Mm. Uh, and uh, it looks it it talks about management of medication, sleep medication, in um, uh, pregnancy. Yeah. But the senior author is usually uh, Rada Bergeli from um, Brown. Oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, it's, uh, it, what the, they, they have shown that modafinil is safe, uh, in the second and third trimester. Mm. There's been no report in the registry. They have a pregnancy registry and, and other than rare minor skeletal abnormalities that have occurred if the if the fetus was exposed to modafinil mm. in the first trimester, they usually don't have any uh, side effect. What about the yeah. oxybates? Oxybates seem to be also safe because uh, originally uh, GHP was used as a uh, anesthetic for uh, shorter anesthetic for uh, C-sections in the was it 60s. really? Yeah, in I Europe. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Um, so again, I tell them not, nothing in the first trimester because that's where the major organs forming afterwards. That's fine. Hmm. Uh, I monitor them, make sure they have a, a high risk OB they're seeing, getting frequent ultrasounds. Uh, amphetamines, the, uh, I generally don't recommend, although the data about fetal malformations and amphetamine and other complications in pregnancy comes from literature looking at amphetamine abuse, mm. not therapeutic use of amphetamine. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, there's not much data on methylphenidate. And uh, generally speaking, again, after the first trimester, I put them on the minimum effective dose. And Now, uh, 
the if they're on stimulants, uh, um, I generally ask them to stop it uh, the last week of pregnancy to prevent the fetal or, or newborn withdrawal syndrome. Oh, sure. Okay. What about um, breastfeeding? Uh, so with breastfeeding, again, modafinil is okay. Oxybates are short acting, so that's fine. If they're really concerned, uh, I recommend that they save the milk when the medication is at the trough level and use that milk to feed. And then when the uh, medication would be at its peak in their bloodstream to pump and dump. Mm. Okay, so that's that's a very logical approach, right? The the trough, mm-hmm. the peak and trough. Okay, that's uh, that's something uh, I borrowed from uh, the epilepsy literature. I wondered. Okay, I wondered. So, what about behavioral modifications to help our patients with hypersomnolence? A behavioral modifications are very very important. Uh, I always do that uh, uh, to, as an adjunct mm. to. Uh, pharmacotherapy. Now, number one behavioral modification, and perhaps the most important uh, in in my opinion, is to uh, talk to the family, yeah. explain to the family that this is a real illness. Uh, they are not avoiding, you know, doing chores and uh, uh, and uh, etc. So. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've had cases where the partner was insisting that the patient drive uh, because uh, uh, they didn't want their family to find out that their partner had this shameful <gasps> disorder. No. And the, my patient was saying, I can't drive. I am uh, sleepy. Yeah, of course. I'm afraid I'm going to crash the car. Oh, my gosh. Finally, um, the partner agreed and, uh, about the driving, but uh, they wouldn't. I offered to meet with them and yeah. explain the situation. They, they refused to meet with me. Uh, and um, they, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of pushback. And finally... My patient said, "Now they have a status quo and taking the medication, and you know." Oh uh, my goodness! St- still, it's a apparently this person, the part that was someone who uh, uh, believes in that all illness can be cured by you know will mm. and you know mm-hmm, climb, mm-hmm. Uh, increase your exercise and do this and that. Wouldn't it be great uh, if that was true? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The other, uh, the second behavioral modification that I found helpful, not as a standalone treatment, mm. uh, but as a um, um, uh, adjunct, a good adjunct, is uh, uh, going gluten-free. Um, there's hmm. the, some literature to suggest that there's a cross-reactivity between antibodies are found in narcolepsy and in uh, celiac disease. Um, there's one abstract uh, from a pulmonary meeting that showed the increased prevalence of celiac disease in a narcolepsy population compared to the general population. And I've been keeping track of it in my patient, and we're hoping to get an IRB to do a retrospective chart huh. review. 
Um, and uh, majority of, first of all, just a quick slice and dice uh, on Epic shows me that uh, uh, the prevalence of uh, celiac disease diagnosis among the narcolepsy patients I have is significantly higher than the general population. Hmm. Uh, and also, I've uh, been uh, noticing improvement in their symptoms when they say they're... And they sometimes go back, take eating regular, and they sure. notice the difference. That's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. And the third uh, thing is uh, napping. Yes. Uh, so uh, strategic napping, obviously better for narcolepsy than idiopathic hypersomnia. Because with idiopathic hypersomnia, once they nap, they mm-hmm. can't uh, wake up uh, easily. Uh, and then uh, uh, for idiopathic hypersomnia, and with narcolepsy as well, but, uh, is the light exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, idiopathic hypersomnia with long sleep, I think this, this was a paper that came out either in uh, Sleep Medicine or Journal of Sleep Research. Uh, at the, if uh, if they have long sleep, light exposure at uh, at their morning mm. um, uh, tends to improve ability to wake up in the morning, and uh, or that inertia helps mitigate the inertia. So I generally d- definitely recommend either a light box or one of those alarms. The important thing to uh, realize is that a lot of idiopathic hypersomnia patients also have delayed sleep phase. Sure. So you shouldn't do the light too early. If you expose them to light before their core body temperature reaches its minimum, uh, which is roughly about two or three hours before natural wake-up time, Mm. then you delay them even further. Yeah. So it's very important to do that. And I think uh, the ASM's recommendation of doing a week of actigraphy is uh, very important, Mm. particularly with IH patients, because often we discover that they actually have a circadian rhythm problem, Mm -hmm. not through IH. Yeah, Isn't that interesting when you get that back? Yeah. Yeah. So did you notice any changes in your patients with hypersomnolence during COVID? And and the reason I ask is I have a friend who uh-huh. takes care of children. And uh-huh. all of a sudden, when the school start time was delayed and kids were getting more sleep, all of a sudden their hypersomnolence got better. <laughs> so, yes. Mm-hmm. Did you see uh, that in your population? Yes, definitely. Working from home uh, uh, is, uh, and uh, the uh, shut or the whether whether it's a lockdown or mm-hmm. a stay-at-home order, uh, helped significantly my patients with uh, hypersomnia, even though it made things worse for the insomnia patients because yeah. they they no longer had the structure, you know. Uh, yes, definitely they allowed them, the lack of commute allowed them to sleep a little bit longer. Uh, and um, there is, uh, uh, this data is also published uh in the literature uh, about IH patients and uh, the pandemic and mm-hmm. and the improvement they had. So any final thoughts? The final thoughts are that both narcolepsy, or more narcolepsy than IH, uh, is both underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed. 
very often uh, people get the false diagnosis of narcolepsy because they have maybe uncontrolled sleep apnea that mm. nobody really bothered looking into um, or because uh, they're chronically sleep deprived. I recall somebody who worked night shift uh, at one of the large warehouses here in Chicago and uh, obviously she was only getting four or five hours of sleep and then falling asleep during her work. And uh, someone diagnosed her with narcolepsy without any testing. You oh, know, my goodness. A, I okay. mean, that's an extreme example, but, you know, <laughs> so that's very important. And then with IH, it's very important to evaluate them for circadian rhythm uh, mm. um, disorders, particularly the late sleep phase. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us to better understand some of these nuances about medications and behavioral therapy uh, to treat central disorders of hypersomnolence. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service, And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.